And that's the most jovial this episode is going to get. If you couldn't tell from the uh, title, we have another historical disaster with hundreds of needless and tragic deaths. Uh, feel free to go ahead with that warning. Bummer warning! I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. That's right. We're taking something old and making it something new. Unfortunately, our topics might make you blue. <laughs> Every time! Almost a snort. You... Alright, next time it's your turn to, to make no. the joke. Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. Nope. I don't make jokes. I just talk about sad, depressing stuff. Speaking of, what have we got today, darling? Well, we are going to talk about another cheery, cheery, uplifting subject. Oh, that makes sense, because uh, I'm looking at our listener mail for this episode, and people want to talk about the sound of music. Do you have a guess at what it is? I couldn't begin. No? No? So, do you think it's going to involve dead people? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I super do. We are going to talk about the Iroquois... Theater Fire of 1903. Oh, great. Do, do you know much about this one? Well, again, guess going by the name, I think I've got the bullet points. <laughs> the when and the where and the what. Theater Fire 1903. Yeah. So, filming it on the rest, darling. Okay. It is the deadliest theater fire and deadliest single building fire in U.S. history. Great, 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 great. So we're breaking some records here. Uh, the the only um, thing that mm -hmm. tops its record is if you include 9-11. Oh. Just going to throw that out there. Whether you <laughs> want to edit that out or not, I don't know. But that's the only thing. <laughs> Speaking of breaking records, I'm already considering scrapping this. Great. This theater, burning down, mm -hmm. led to the deaths of at least 602 people. But not all the numbers were reported, so it's hard to know for sure, but it was at least that many. So this theater, you know where it stands, actually. If you are familiar with Chicago and you've been downtown, you know where the, you've probably seen the Oriental Theater. Yes, which at the is the Ford Center for Performing Arts. Where that stands is where the Iroquois stood. Definite use of the past tense there. <laughs> yes. So um, the theater was 24 to 28 West Randolph Street between State and Dearborn, which I believe the Oriental is technically 24 West Randolph. It's right there. Same spot. If any of our listeners delivers their mail, uh, you, you might know a bit better than that. <laughs> As I said, between State and Dearborn sure. on Randolph, it's it's right in the loop. If you're walking uh, down State Street, it, you can't miss the mm -hmm. Oriental sign. So that area was a theater district. Before that, interesting fact, um, before the Great Fire of you know 1871, mm -hmm. uh, it was actually like the home of like gamblers. Sure, it was called like Hair Trigger Block, <laughs> um, and it ran on Randolph <laughs> between Clark and State. It was all like bars and gambling and mm -hmm. it was not a place you went after the fire though it was rebuilt as a theater district 
And yeah, uh, we got to get something respectable up in here. So they built this theater there because you know it's a shopping district in the Loop. Um, it's safe and patrolled a lot. The idea was that it would attract a lot of women that were there on day trips with children because mm-hmm. it was just right off of this safe area. Right. Um, right. So it was built with that idea of attracting people. Uh, Especially women who really enjoy hair triggers, I guess. The, the gambling women. That was gone by then. I'm saying before. Before it became sure, a theater sure. district. It was, it, was, it was already starting to be a theater district before it was built. Um, and it still is a theater district to this day. So the theater was built and completed in 1903. <laughs> Banner year for them. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it was designed by Benjamin H. Marshall. The facade of the building was designed with, like, modern French style, uh, polished granite, Bedford stone, 60-foot tall foyer, which the way the Oriental looks right now mm-hmm. is very much the way that uh, the Iroquois looked at the time. Oh, so it's it, not it, the original. So it was gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. So they actually, like, copied the design of it when oh. they built the Oriental in its place. Um, but this time they used actual marble and not like paper mache or whatever burned down and killed 600 people that you're going to tell me about. Well, we'll get there. We'll okay, get there. okay. Um, so the theater at the time sat uh, 1,602 people on uh, three levels. You had like the main floor, the dress circle, first balcony, and the gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, there were six boxes as well. So it was, it was a, it was a big theater. Um, backstage was also especially large for the time, like dressing rooms on five different levels, um, a huge fly gallery, and they even had like an elevator to transport actors from like the different levels to the stage, <laughs> which like, that's pretty awesome. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's a lot for the time. So they, they were definitely future-proofing it. They knew a hundred years from now, there's going to be the show called Wicked, and it's going to run here for months and months and months. <laughs> we got to be prepared. Got to be ready. Uh, so the building was set to be completed for the holiday season of 1903. Mm-hmm. But there was like a major disagreement between two of the unions over uh, the summer that delayed construction, mm-hmm. and they weren't sure they were going to make that deadline. The disagreement centered on uh, like false work. So, like, pieces of the building that were built to, like, hold up different structures and would be removed after completion. So, like, a wooden arch, which was constructed to hold up the roof till the concrete was finished type thing. Right. All that type of stuff. Um, So, how did that cause a dispute? Like, the carpenters were, that were hired um, to, like, do stuff. The bricklayers, like, wouldn't let into the building. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the carpenters were like, well, screw this. I'm leaving then. <laughs> uh, and like walked off. Uh, it lasted for like weeks where they just wouldn't let someone else in the building. I couldn't get more information on like, why? Probably Dracula. But that happened. And eventually it did end. And when it ended, they, the owners ordered that the building be finished as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Spare details that can be fixed after the new year. Just like, let's get this building up and operating and we'll finish fine detailing it after we can make money off of it. Right. Which will be an important thing shortly. Opening night of the theater was November 23rd, 1903. Uh Aha. Just Uh, in time for Black Friday. It was uh, said by many to be one of the most beautiful theaters in Chicago. 
And some people even said, like, there were very few theaters in the country that, like, rivaled its architectural perfection. And it wasn't even done. Hey, all <laughs> yeah. right. Uh, it was also billed to be absolutely fireproof in advertisements and playbills. <laughs> okay, hold don't on. Don't say things about things. Like, don't say the Titanic's like, unsinkable. It's gonna sink. Don't say your building's fireproof. It's gonna catch fire. <laughs> Now, see, everything in the city burns down, though. Every single thing. Well, I think that's why they're like, hey, we won't burn down. You'll be fine. I, I, I don't know if you're planning to talk about this later, but anytime you go to a theater in Chicago, if you read up on it, uh, if they have, like, a historical marker or just a Wikipedia page, anything, it burned down. Every yeah. single one is burned Chance, down. Chances some, or some part of it has been on fire. Yeah. And then they've had to rebuild sections of it. There there are reasons you aren't allowed to light a candle on a stage in <laughs> Chicago. They just know it's going to happen. I had to light a match once on stage, and I was terrified. <laughs> I'm like, this is a curse of Chicago. I can't light a match and walk around with it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to light like something. I will drop it, and everything will go up in flames. Mm -hmm. Even marble, apparently. <laughs> The first show that uh, opened at the theater mm -hmm. was uh, the musical comedy Mr. Bluebeard, um, which had been on Broadway earlier in the year. Uh, it was a burlesque of, like, the traditional Bluebeard folktale. Mm -hmm. um, Eddie Foy was the star of the show. Um, and at the time, he was one of, the, like, the top actors of his generation and was going to go on to be, um, a, like, a vaudeville legend. He mm -hmm. became very famous. So his character that he played was Sister Anne. So he cross-dressed for that. It, yeah. Alongside Dan uh, McAvoy, who played Bluebeard. Any relation to James McAvoy? <laughs> Probably not. It's kind of a common name. Sure. Um, Crush my dreams, why don't you? <laughs> the show wasn't that popular. <laughs> like It had very mixed reviews where, like, Kids and families enjoyed it because of, like, the slapstick comedy and mm -hmm. visual aspects of it. But it was more of, like, a British humor, which wasn't necessarily, like, people got here. Mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was a different style. And a lot of critics were just, like, it's very typical. There's nothing surprising about it. It's well, yeah, boring. It's a 1903 burlesque. What do you expect? <laughs> Come on now. It was also really racist. It's a 1903 burlesque. What do you expect? <laughs> Come on now. Well, I knew it would be, and then I was reading something that described, like, all the acts of it, and I was like, oh boy, oh boy. Could've, we're not going to go into that, but man, you can you can go see, like, a list of scenes, and that is something. Since the show had very mixed reviews, when it opened, it actually wasn't doing very well. Mm -hmm. um, but as they got closer to the holiday season, and also, like, the theater being known for, like, how beautiful it was, and how amazing it was in mm -hmm. architecture, that... They had really good ticket sales as the holiday season went on. You can sell anything in December. Yeah. Elf the musical? Come on. Yeah. They still filled that house. Yeah. I... So they started selling a lot. The day we are going to focus on was December 30th, 1903, about a month after it opened. It was a complete sellout. Sure. This night. Or this afternoon. It was actually a matinee. Um, completely sold out. All the seats were sold. And then there were an additional... 234 standing room only seats that were sold. Um, so almost 2,000 people mm -hmm. were in this theater. 
all the standing room only people were either, you know, standing or they were like sitting in aisles and doorways, anywhere they could find throughout the theater. Places you're not allowed to be anymore during a show. Yeah. yeah. You better yeah, not okay. even have your foot in the aisle and Usher's going <laughs> to yell at you. 90% of the audience was women and children because it was a matinee. Mm-hmm. Well, and also like this was, you know, this is right like during like holiday vacation type thing mm-hmm. where like kids. Yeah, yeah. Kids did have time off of school over the holidays like that at that point in time. You know, it's just before New Year. So everyone is doing, you know, venturing to the city to like taking the shopping and the decorations and everything. Mm -hmm. The streets were bustling at the time of this. So the show, as I said, was a matinee. Around 3 p.m. that day, they were coming to the end of Act One. Um, There was the moonlight scene. Okay. Uh, it was where um, a ballad was sung in the pale moonlight. They were preparing, like Eddie Foy and others were preparing um, for their appearance in the next scene, which was like an aerial ballet with fairies hanging on wires and floating over the audience. This was a very elaborate production. Yeah, this sounds killer. What's wrong with those critics? <laughs> so during the scene, a stagehand had to spin a spotlight onto the singers to show the moonlight hitting them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Old stage lights at the time were, like, calcium lights, which often, like, would send off, like, hot flakes, like carbon flakes, you know. They would, <laughs> perfect. Perfect. I love it. They they sparked a lot. You know, they had they did have, like, wires that, like, hung lights up and tried to keep them from, like, hanging in the right place. It's kind of mixed on what actually happened. Some people say one of those wires was loose and a light was too close. Some people say that, like, something wasn't moved into the proper place um, and things got caught. But the light sparked or hit a curtain and a fire started on a curtain hanging over the stage when the spotlight moved. And curtains at the time, as we all know, are made entirely of sawdust uh, and dryer lint. We are going to get there, actually. Uh, okay, You're jumping great. ahead a little. Great, You're jumping ahead great, a little. Um, well, this was like a p- thin, like, Muslim curtain that was painted. This and one that caught fire. Made entirely of wet French women's dresses. Yes. Okay. With very flammable paint on it. Um, so the fire started, and it started, like, moving upward. The stagehands saw this right away. And they immediately called for the fireproof asbestos curtain to be dropped. <laughs> it, this curtain... At least they're prepared. Well, yeah, this curtain was there to uh, separate stage from audience because so much of stuff on stage at that time was extremely flammable. Mm-hmm. So they knew this is just a fire waiting to happen. <laughs> so they had this curtain that was supposed to stop and, like, shield your audience. Right. As they were doing this... The performers and audience started to notice the fire. Mm-hmm. They also, like, started to try to, like, clap it out. Like, there was a stagehand by there who was trying to, like, clap it out. Um, wasn't really working. There uh, were, like, fire extinguishers. Not the fire extinguishers we know today, but ones of the time they tried to use, but they weren't very useful for, where like, how high it was. Mm-hmm. So it quickly started spreading. So this curtain, though, that was supposed to drop. Right. It's supposed to drop within 60 seconds. Sure. It got caught on something. So the right side, stage right side of the curtain fell as it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. The stage left got, like, caught on a lighting apparatus. (laughs) 
And uh, it was this was an apparatus that was used in like the previous scene and never got like moved out of the way like it was supposed to be. And the curtain was like on the stage left side was only made it about halfway. And this is why you respect your your crew because they're the only things keeping you from burning death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because now the audience is completely exposed to this fire that is happening. Obviously, this started some panic. Y- yeah, People saw yeah. fire and they're like, oh no. Um, Eddie Foy, who was in his dressing room applying more makeup for the next scene. I'm um, gonna be a star. He, he heard the commotion mm-hmm. and, uh, he rushed out of the dressing room to the stage. Um, on his way, he found like his six year old son. Oh, um, no. Who was like watching stuff and like handed him to like a stage hand and was like, get him out of here. I have to do stuff. Take him. Leave. <laughs> Um, the show must go on. Well, so the actor, Eddie, went out to the audience mm-hmm. and uh, dressed the crowd, told them, like, keep quiet, be calm, it's all right, don't get excited, don't stampede, it's all right. Uh, he, like, turned to the orchestra pit, told them to play, play anything, play something to help keep calm, and was just standing there reminding the audience to leave, but leave slowly, be patient. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they struck up a Ramstein number and everyone began moshing. <laughs> Actually, no. The audience followed his advice. Okay, good. They, good, good. they started walkly, walking slowly towards the Randolph Street entrance where they came in. But the people on the balconies had a hard time with this mm-hmm. because their staircases were narrow. The aisles were weird. <laughs> um, and they started to get kind of panicky because the smoke was, like, filling in the room. Mm-hmm. So as they were doing this, and Eddie Foy kept saying, like, no, stay calm, it's fine, like, just move at your own pace, don't rush anyone, a stage, a theater employee mm-hmm. decided to open some backstage doors to the alley. Oh. Which another stagehand yelled at him, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and to quote, the draft is as strong as a gale, and the fire, fire will be on top of the audience in minutes. Yeah. what was said. So, oh, they attempted to close the doors, but in a panic, a bunch of chorus girls and other performers made a rush for the exit and crowded it, and, like, they couldn't close it. So now they're just feeding this fire with a whole bunch of fresh oxygen coming right in from the back door. Yes. All while this is starting to go on, people in the balconies were panicking more because they weren't being able to move as quickly. Right. Um, they started rushing over each other. Some people apparently jumped off balconies to try to get out. They were trying to find fire escapes, but some were locked or didn't work who, properly. Who locks a fire escape? Uh, many people, we, we, we will get there. Don't you worry. People fell. People tripped. A lot of dead ends mm-hmm. came to. Um, some people who were able to get through some fire escapes were able to, like, crawl to a building next door. Okay. As this is happening, people in other buildings are starting to realize stuff is going on, and they're, like, trying to help and aid people getting across out of these fire escapes. Mm-hmm. So there were, like, some painters, apparently, in the building next door that, like, saw people trying to get out the fire escapes and put, like, boards across huh. so people could crawl cl- across yeah, boards. Yeah, yeah. Because there were issues, and they could not actually, like, go down the fire escapes. Which we will explain. Like, it's I, right in the name, though. You need those to escape fires. Yeah, they they weren't working. They, uh, they were either uh, stuck, or they crossed into more fire, or 
they were not lined up to where people could actually get on them. Mm-hmm. Lots of problems there. So all this is happening. And other actors and stagehands are trying to get out through, like, coal hatches and windows and dressing rooms. And there's this crazy panic of, like, people trying to get out. And then there was those stage doors that were opened. Mm-hmm. So we talked about, like, the air's rushing in. Right. So the fire pushed from the stage by the draft under the open curtain and into the auditorium. And there was a fireball that flew up into the balcony. It said that it killed hundreds instantly. And when this happened, all the lights went out as well. Well, that's helpful. That's going to be great for the panic. Yeah. So when that happened, Eddie Foy, who had been trying to keep the calm, rushed into, uh, out of the building through that back entrance as mm-hmm. fast as he could, because at that point, there was nothing else he could do. Those who managed to escape the fireball uh, on the upper floors were trapped by iron gates blocking entrances or by, like, congestion of people trying to get out. The largest death tolls were actually, like, on stairways from people being trampled or crushed or fixated. You, you know, know, yeah, as um, you might expect. The theater had no fire alarm or telephone. Why? So the fire- Why did they not have a telephone? That we, we, We're going to talk about these specific what? things later. Don't you worry. So the fire department mm-hmm. was alerted by a stagehand who ran to the fire department, the closest one. And uh, the fire department on their way actually, like, didn't think it was real. They thought it was a false alarm because... Those, those actors, they're just so dramatic. Well, because smoke wasn't, like, coming out of the building for, mm-hmm. like, 15 to 20 minutes after the fire started. So as they're arriving, smoke is only just starting to be seen mm-hmm. um, coming out of the building. They arrived by 3.30. Okay. Okay. And uh, within an hour, the fire was under control. Oh, well, that's nice. The building itself had little damage. (laughs) Like, the stage was destroyed, and all, like, the upholstery from the seats were gone. Mm -hmm. But the building itself stood. Oh, well, that's handy, you know, (laughs) for tomorrow's show. Yeah, just build a new stage. It'll be fine. So now that the fire is out... Mm-hmm. They they have to deal with, you know, recovery and saving people if they can. Some, one of the people who assisted in recovery compared the theater um, to the battlefields of the Civil War. Uh-huh. And said that they were, like, nothing like it. He's like, I've seen the battlefields of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And this is worse. People were, of course, rushing to the scene as soon as they heard of it to, like, know if their families made it. Police were lying to people, saying, oh, yes, every- almost everyone got out. Everyone got out, trying to, like, control the crowd. But that was not the case. The city, yet again, like a similar story we heard, does not have enough, like, wagons mm-hmm. or spaces for the dead or the injured so, yet again, private wagons came from uh, retail shops. Morgues were set up in makeshift areas. All the actual morgues between North Avenue and 22nd were filled. And that was the last time anyone cared about anything south of Roosevelt. <laughs> so, uh... uh... The living were taken uh, to a diner next door 
that like became a makeshift hospital. Marshall Fields uh, store on State Street was also used as an improvised hospital. They it said that they were filled within 30 minutes. And that's like a nine-story, ten-story building. Yeah. Before going to morgues, the dead were laid along like the sidewalk. And apparently there's stories of like a woman being put with the corpses and then like getting up and being alive or a guy being on a morgue wagon and then like being like, nope, I'm not dead. But, you know, they're dealing with such a mass amount of people. Right. It could be very confusing to know if that person's just unconscious or actually dead. Mm -hmm. So that was apparently something that happened. Of the 300 or so actors, dancers, stagehands. Mm-hmm. Staff. Staff. Only five of them died. Oh, yeah, they, they made it out of that back door just fine. Yeah, that helped. I mean, they were like, if you have that factor, they had access to the coal hatches and they had access to um, windows. Mm-hmm. It's also a much smaller amount of people who are closer to exits. Than everyone else. It was an aerialist who had been trapped above the stage and fell. Uh, an actor, an usher, and two female attendants, it is said. The identification of bodies took several days, and uh, it's said that there was an amazing amount of people trying to claim bodies of individuals that they were not related to and, like, posing as family because they wanted to profit from false insurance claims. Oh, come on now. Yeah. Apparently that was like a big, big problem with this that, thing. I don't I don't like that at all. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things not to like about well, this. Well, yeah, okay. But the the Eastland episode, that didn't happen then. That there was this like No, there's a lot of people like robbing dead bodies. Okay, but this is just scummy. This is garbage. Yeah. By the way, is, is there going to be a landslide in Chicago or a tornado so we can finish off all the classical elements? <laughs> We've got our fire and water down. I, I want to finish the bingo. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll look into it. Okay, I don't know of anything, but I'll look into it. To compare this disaster, so the Great Chicago Fire destroyed like 17,000, almost 500 buildings. Mm-hmm. Like 250 to 300 people died. Yeah. It said. One building, over 600 in, like, half an hour. So what what a difference 30 years can make. Yeah, just that there was an interesting fact. I feel weird when I say I find these things interesting. And we've got much more interesting stuff coming up for you right after this. <laughs> Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that brief moment of respite from death and destruction and sadness. Well, we're not done. We're not done. Because I... now that you've heard kind of the narrative, mm -hmm. the overall story of what happened, we're going to look at closer at the things that led to this being such a disaster, okay. such a problem. I mentioned some of these things, some of these, like, problems and, like, people trying to get out and this happened or this happened. We're really going to – it's a long list of things and we're going to gonna tell you all about them because it's really amazing that there's so many things. Sure. Okay? So, first off, the theater 
apparently had 30 exits, which the owners claimed mm-hmm. would get everyone out in five minutes. It's a lot of exits. That's a big number. Mm-hmm. We had, what, 2,000 people divided by 30 exits? That's... Oh, tw- tw- like 2,300 people, if you include the actors and everyone. Sure, sure. But still. That's a lot. Yeah. It should That should actually, you know, work, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, first off, most of the doors opened inward. Oh, that's no good. So, of course, doors hard to open into a crowd. People got pinned. People, like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's not working well. Many of the doors also had a lock that was not used here a lot. They had European bascule locks. Okay. Which are apparently very common, you know, in over, over the ocean, but not here. Um, most people have never seen it, and it's said that only, like, two people who worked there really even understood how to open them. How to open the door. Yes. Great. Like these locks that were on many of the doors. Um, there are no exit signs. <laughs> the owners claim they ordered them, but they were never delivered. And many exits were covered with decorative flammable curtains. Um, so people had no idea that there were, like, doors behind there. Uh-huh. And that's the perfect kind of curtain you want in this situation. Flammable one, yeah. yeah. Especially when a fireball is coming towards you. Mm-hmm. No one ever had a fire drill in the building. They were open for a month. Still should have had one yeah, before you opened. absolutely. But <laughs> There was no emergency lighting on in the auditorium because they only had, like, the show lights were on, which are dim. Mm-hmm. And then no one ever turned on the emergency ones when the emergency started happening. And then, of course, the power went out. Oh, so They had bigger fish to fry. Um, they had to figure out how to open all these ridiculous doors. The building was built with one main stairwell. The idea was people of all ticket prices could see and be seen as they were, like, entering the theater. Yeah, it's, it's a democratic plan for, for your entrance, I guess. Well, that also meant all the stairways led to one stairway that led to one main entrance. Yeah, that still sucks coming out of a theater normally these yeah. days. This was against fire code at the time oh, as well. okay. Because, like, nowadays, like, they have those in theaters, but there's always side staircases as well. Mm-hmm. And, like, other things. This was, like, this is the only way out. And the stairways out of the balconies were narrow, mm-hmm. wound very oddly. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of them had iron gates that were put down during the show to keep cheaper ticket holders from going down to the more expensive seats. So everyone gets to see, be, uh, uh, be seen, but some people get to be seen in the same way as a lion at the zoo. Look, Mommy, a poor person. Well, yeah. You you get to be seen until, well, now you're up there. You don't get to come down. Yeah. You have to stay there. The main entrance was also locked during the show. This was apparently done because, like, the theater operators were trying to stop people from sneaking in while they were working elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So as people were trying to leave, they actually had to break the glass doors so people could get out. There were also a lot of ornamental doors that were not actually doors <laughs> and led nowhere, led to, like, dead-end hallways. So or were, like, windows. Yeah. The doors you can see don't go anywhere. Sometimes. The doors that do go outside are hidden behind curtains. Yeah. Did Willy Wonka build this death trap? Maybe, because it's said that 200 people died in a passageway that was not an exit. Oh, dear. It had just a decorative door, and they all got trapped. Then This getting... is straight-up fan of the opera. 
getting to our uh, fire escapes that we talked about, they were very narrow. Mm-hmm. They were icy. Of course. Ladders crossed in a lot of windows, in front of a lot of windows that were had flames shooting out of them. So not your first choice. There, there was also issues where, like, you'd get to a fire escape and it'd be, like, a three-foot drop to the actual escape. Okay. And then there was also issues where, like, it wouldn't – like, you couldn't actually get down to the ground. Mm-hmm. And they were either locked in place or, like, it just didn't go far enough. People ended up, like, jumping off the fire escapes and or falling over it. And then you just had a mess of people – Bodies. Right. And they're going to break your fall for the next wave. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. It's helpful. Yeah. Like, like lemmings, which is apocryphal. Don't write. I know. The fire escapes led to an alley. And a lot of people died in that alley. The alley has a nickname we will talk about later as well. So keep listening for that nickname. I hope it's more fun than Hair Trigger Alley. <laughs> so Marshall, who mm-hmm. designed the building had studied fire safety extensively before designing this theater. Well, there's theory and then there's practice, I well, think. he included skylight vents that were supposed to act as a flue, allowing fire and smoke to escape. Mm-hmm. These were all put in. They were behind the dress circle, in the gallery, all over. They had been installed, but the workers didn't remove the wiring which kept them closed for transport. So they didn't open. It's like a a suit coat's pockets coming sewn shut. Yeah. They just didn't tear out those stitches. Yeah. Great, great. So, like, that whole fireball thing Mm -hmm. would not have been such an issue had these vents been operational because they would have sucked it all up and not into people. That's also why, like, the firefighters who were arriving at the scene thought that it was a false alarm. is because all these vents were locked. So smoke wasn't actually coming up and out, except through doorways when people were finally getting out the exits. Right. And we also have that fireproof asbestos curtain. Mm-hmm. It was not actually fireproof. All right. How do you make something out of asbestos and it's not fireproof? That's the one thing okay. it's good for. So these curtains were supposed to be, it was asbestos, like, interwoven with wire. Okay. That's how what they're supposed to be. Yeah. The curtain they had, it was later found out, was largely wood pulp. Wait, what? No. No. It was mostly wood pulp mixed with some asbestos because this makes the curtain last longer, it's cheaper, and you don't need as much wiring. But it's no use in a fire because it's wood. It's the one thing it's for. So the people, like, they got a cheap wood curtain that's supposed to stop fire. Okay, all right. I uh, I know you you want to get a pickup truck, but here we go. I've got this other vehicle that's uh, is cheaper. It runs better. It cannot carry literally anything, but it'll do the job of your pickup truck. What? It's this one job. It's yep. got one job. It's supposed to do one thing, but no. And it said it said they saved fifty dollars by getting this curtain. Instead of the curtain they were supposed to get. $50 divided among 600 lives. Yep. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. Yep. Talked about, like, the fire extinguishers. Mm -hmm. They had six. Um, They were kill-fry extinguishers. These were used to douse chimney fires in homes. 
when using them, you were supposed to like forcibly hurl the contents at the base of the flame. The fire was above everyone's head on a curtain. What are you going to do? Well, I mean, just toss it? It was late December. It's it's snowball season. Just chuck it up there. You, you recruit all these children to join in the fun. They only had six of them, too. You find the six best children. So, and then to, to top all these things off, all these Oh, yeah, we need a problems. topper. Great. The editor of Fireproof Magazine toured the building during construction and noted the lack of intake or stage draft shafts, exposed reinforcements in the arch, and wood trim everywhere. But who gave the quote that they put in the program about how it's unburnable? Not him! I guess. Also, a Chicago fire captain made an unofficial tour of the theater days before it opened, noted that there were no sprinklers, alarms, telephones, or water connections. He pointed all these things out. How do they even sell tickets without a telephone? You need a telephone for so many things. Well, people just come up and buy them. I mean, it wasn't the time, like, I mean, it's 1903. Telephones were still not, like, wide use. It's still more commonplace than Ticketmaster at the time. But this fire captain pointed these things out to the theater fire warden, who said, well, there's nothing I can do because if I say anything, I'm just going to get fired. And then I can't do anything about anything. He also reported it to his commander, who said it wasn't his place because the theater already has a fire warden, and if that's the case, he would be taking care of these problems. So it's a jurisdictional thing. Yep. And this fire warden happened to be, like, Bozo the Clown. There's a lot of... There's this long list of stuff. And honestly, I feel kind of bad for the guy that designed this theater, because he, like, paid attention to it. He, like design stuff in there that is mm -hmm. supposed to help prevent this stuff. Well, not but enough stuff, according to uh, Fire Prevention Magazine, which I'm sure is a scintillating read. I feel like part of it is, like, did he have stuff in there that then the owners and workers just never put in? Because obviously Perhaps. there are a lot of steps taken there that were kind of like, well, we're just going to do this so we can move along. Yeah. Because we need to get this place open and we'll deal with it in a month. So, yeah, it was a fire waiting to happen, but it could have waited longer than a month. A month. A month. Theater management, after this happened, of course, saw that, oh, no, blame's going to be coming. You don't say. <laughs> the day after a large poster was put up at the hotel where many of the employees were staying, telling them to prepare to leave quickly if needed, like, pack your bag, you might need to make a run for it. Because Johnny Law's coming. City Council, County Coroner's Office, Grand Jury investigated the fire. There was a trail of uh, incompetence, criminal negligence that led from, like, the stage to the mayor's office. And that's where it still lies. <laughs> Obviously, management. We've already talked about a lot of that stuff. That whole list of problems all goes back to management. The mm -hmm. people who run this theater, cutting corners. Also, a lot of blame on city building inspectors because a week before an inspection happened and it turned up nothing of note these inspectors also accepted comp tickets <laughs> too bad they never had a good show come in <laughs> there's also stuff there where uh inspectors at the time were very underpaid and understaffed so kind of also falls to the city there of like well you are not allowing these people to operate in a way that they can do their jobs, mm -hmm. though they are not choosing to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. Big problems there. 
theater employees had ba- blame for opening the stage door, not uh, retracting that lighting apparatus that caught the curtain, doing doing a lot of things in ways that they should not have been doing because they kind of panicked. Right. Opening the wrong doors, but not the, the good doors, the doors we wanted open. Yes. In November, uh, Mayor Carter Harrison had received a report that fire regulations in Chicago theaters were not being, like, obeyed. Mm-hmm. And the mayor was concerned with the political fallout from theater worker unions that supported him, so he did nothing, just passed it on to city council. Aldermans ignored it as well. Mm-hmm. It's like, nope, nope, we're not going to do anything about this because I want to get reelected again. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> Twelve theater employees were arrested for manslaughter due to criminal negligence. Um, over time, 30 more were arrested. More people were arrested, um, including theater managers who were brought to the jail. Um, city building inspectors, fire marshal, and the mayor um, were also charged with crimes. Mm-hmm. In the end, no one was ever prosecuted. Okay. That's, um, that sounds fair. That's <laughs> nice. You know, the public eye kind of moved on very quickly after that. Several weeks. Because I'm sure just a month down the road, there was another, like, 500 people dying somewhere in this city. Probably. Um, The only person who was ever convicted in a connection to the fire was a bar owner for grave robbing. Well, that's a pretty cut and dried case. (laughs) Assigning blame in that one seems pretty easy. And uh, two days after the fire... Um, all theaters were closed by the mayor until uh, full inspections could be made. Mm-hmm. But theater workers unions uh, put a lot of pressure on the city to get this like done quickly because they knew it was just going to sit around and like right they weren't going to if- make it a priority. So they like showed up to city meetings like hissing and booing at the mayor until like come inspect our theaters so we can get back to work. Right. Every day they're waiting for inspection is a day they're not selling tickets. Yeah. All, all this, though, did lead to a lot more building and fire safety codes. One would hope. Yeah. Which, you know, say like, oh, I've told people before, like, you know, this led to a lot of changes and stuff. And people are always like, oh, well, other, you know, every city says that about some fire that happened. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it, I mean, there can be like national laws, but there's also like, it affects your city. Mm-hmm. affects, like, how serious you take something into consideration. So it prompted uh, widespread use of the panic bar, which is now uh, on, like, all doors. It's those, you know, those bars on fire escapes oh, we have now. Okay. Those are panic bars. Okay. Because they are so easy to open. Um, they were actually um, invented back in 1883 following a UK uh, disaster um, at... I believe it was another performance venue that was primarily filled with children. 20 years later is when we finally started using them around here. It also led to uh, the fact that asbestos fire curtains, or if not that, a sheet metal screen had to be raised before the performance and lowered after to separate audience from stage. Mm-hmm. Um, which they still do to this day. For- You're free to break the fourth wall Unless it's made of asbestos. You, you got to keep that keep that intact. Um, it also led to doors in public buildings um, had to open in the d- direction of egress. Even though they said this and it kind of became more common, it 
didn't really become into full force until the Collinswood School Fire of 1908. I'm so sure that's a future episode coming in. Yep. <laughs> One of these weeks. Um, it also led to uh, balconies had to have separate entrances and exits available. Um, hallways had to be four feet wide, aisles uh, 36 inches. Um, led to ordinances about space between rows, fire exits in view. Doors had to be left unlocked when occupied. So stuff that you'd think, like, kind of would be common sense. Like, oh, yeah, leave a door unlocked. Right. No, they didn't do that until now. So that's just, a, it led to a lot of other things, too, but that's kind of, like, the main things that helped change. There is a memorial, like, sculpture plaque thing? Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's a Pokestop. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it is. Well, if you are ever in City Hall in the lobby, it there there is this sculptural plaque that hangs above the revolving doors on the northwest corner. Go catch a Pokemon there. <laughs> this piece of art was uh commissioned uh by the Union League Club after the disaster, and it was made by Lorado Traft. He's known for the Great Lake. Or the Fountain of the Great Lakes, which is outside the Art Institute. You love that. I love it. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's really, really cool. So he made this memorial piece, which was originally placed in the Iroquois Memorial Hospital. This hospital was built, um, it stood at 87 Market Street. Market Street is now Wacker Drive. Okay. Um, it opened in 1910. Um, it apparently treated 250 vic victims of the Eastland disaster. Sure, sure. In some episodes here. Yeah. Um, the building was demolished in 1951, and the art that he made that hung there was lost until it was found in the basement of City Hall quite a while later. And now it hangs in the lobby. Oh. Now we're going to talk about the, the building, what happened to it afterwards. Mm-hmm. The building survived. Stage was destroyed. Anything covered in fabric was destroyed. But the actual right. building was perfectly fine. So they ended up, like, rebuilding inside. And the building and the theater stood for a while. It um, operated as the Hyde and Ben Bayman Music Hall, and then the um, the Colonial. It operated um, as the Colonial until the 1920s, and it continued to be one of the top venues of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you kind of think people would be like, mm, I'm not going to go there. Well, if they fixed it, <laughs> lightning never strikes twice. Okay. Um, Except, oh no, now the second fire was caused by lightning. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> so the building was demolished in the 1920s. The United Masonic Temple building was mm. constructed in 1926 at the same site, which is what is now known as the Ford Center for Performing Arts and the Oriental Theater. As I said before, the out facade of the building looks identical. Not the original. There's some mixed, like, opinions on if anything within the building is still original. Some people say there's parts of the basement that are, or like a wall of the basement. I suppose if anything was, it would be that. I mean, yeah. you, you tear a building down and build a replica, it's it's a replica. Yeah. But there's mixed reviews. Some people say that there's nothing, none of it's, you know, from the original building. Other people are like, no, there's parts of it. It's hard to know. When the Oriental opened, um, it was one of the most ornate movie palaces of Chicago. So it showed a lot of movies, but it also did occasional vaudeville acts. Mm -hmm. And as we know, the Oriental continues to operate. 
But some things I, like, didn't know about it was that in the 70s, the attendance declined, and it only, like, stayed operational because it showed, like, violent B-movies. Quack, which, yeah. Apparently, there was a lot of, like, gang-related crime mm-hmm. around this theater. Like, at one point, they, it's like... It's the 70s. There's gang-related crime everywhere. Yeah. Well, at one point, though, they apparently arrested, like, 60 <sighs> gang members at a showing from, like, rival gangs. <laughs> I hope it was, like, Death Race or something. I don't know. But, death wish. Uh, something with death in the name would make me happy. That was, like, shortly before it closed in uh, 1981. The theater remained vacant until 1996 when it was the property was acquired and restoration began. But there were a lot of financial problems, so it didn't actually get finished and open until October 1998. Which I didn't realize that it was closed for so long. Right, yeah. Um, because, yeah. Yeah. When we moved, it was already, you know, operating as... Ah, the place where you go to see, like, the Broadway tours and everything, and continues to do so. So, you know, didn't really know about that. Mm-hmm. That's what it is now. Still a theater, still going strong, looks similar. There's some ghosts that people talk about oh, in relation to it. Oh, do tell me about the ghosts. Well, they're, they're some of the famous ghosts, people say there's a, a woman in a white tutu. Okay. Which is thought to be the aerialist who fell and died. Yeah. Which makes sense. Okay. There's also a lot of reports of hearing a child giggling, like a little girl giggling throughout the building. And, um. That's like every other ghost. Like. And often a lone scream. Any place that's haunted, you're gonna get giggling little girls and lone screams. <laughs> well, and then there's the alley. The alley where the, all the fire escapes were. Mm-hmm. Um, which is known as Death Alley or the Alley of Death and Mutilation. Now, is that the alley by the backstage door? Uh-huh. Where so we that's stood the alley wait- where we stood waiting for people after seeing Wicked Yes, in to college. get Alphaba's autograph. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the alley we stood in. Um, it is considered by haunted ghost follower people um, to be one of the most active sites in Chicago. So if any of you are haunted ghost follower people... Uh, go check out that alley. I don't remember seeing any ghosts. I was just kind of cold. <laughs> I was kind of cold. Just wondering when Elphaba was going to come out. Wanted to get her autograph. That's kind of the the main thing that's known as that that alley because of the major events that happened there. Couple interesting things related to like how the tale has been spun into like pop culture and stuff. Is there's actually a Bob Hope movie. Mm-hmm. Um, called the Seven Little Foys, and like he played Eddie Foy. Sure. So there's that. Um, and there's uh actually I remember hearing about this play. I never got to see it. But the in two thousand eleven, the neo futurists who do Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind mm-hmm. here um in Chicago. Which if you come and to New Chicago, York, there's see that. there's a neo futurarium yeah, in New York. But Chicago's the original. Okay, we don't need to be like that. <laughs> Holds a special place, okay? One of my teachers went there. Okay. Works there. They produced Burning Bluebeard. Uh huh. Which told the tale of the fire, but it was all perf- from the performer's perspective. Mm hmm. Um, and it actually got remounted in like 2013 and then another time since then, and it like got amazing reviews. It was one of like the top 10 of Fringe that year and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. Um, but I remember like hearing it was an amazing, uh, production. So that fire is the best thing that ever happened to the Bluebeard franchise of theatrical productions. 
yeah, that's that's uh the story of the Iroquois. And mm-hmm. uh it's it's fire and what happened and a lot of death. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking? <laughs> what you, what have you learned? I I learned that I shouldn't let you pick topics anymore. <laughs> a lot of interesting information in there about like fire codes and and chicago history of yes, of yes dear gambler streets yes dear of alleys we stood in that death and mutilation happened yes it was very nice thank you so much i'm trying to think of how to say this uh how to make this point in words but uh it's an example of the way that people just take the path of least resistance. It's like everything, while it was a gorgeous place and, and so much time went into it, when it came down to the details, it seemed to be uh, just finding any corner to cut yep. and uh, any sort of uh, uh, lowest bidder. Yep. And I don't have time to enforce these city laws because the theater people pay for my re-election campaign, or uh, it's not my place, they already have a fire marshal. Oh, but as the fire marshal, if I do my job, I won't have a job. And just uh, capitalism killed 600 people that day. So there you go. Yeah, did. It's one of my uh, other fond stories of Chicago. <laughs> I... I swear there's got to be an uplifting one I like somewhere along here. There are so many, and you never pick them. I don't remember them when I'm trying to pick a topic. So with that, we're going to have one final break and be right back with our going away business. Okay, so now that we are through another one of your episodes, it's time to find out whether we get a repeat performance. Okay. Uh, okay. Before we flip, this is actually something we've been talking about yeah. for a while. Do you, the audience, really value the flip that much, or would you be more interested in just, like, taking turns? and uh, Allow him to have a chance to do something, <laughs> and me to have a break? From doing something. <laughs> but we're going to do it at least one last time. Uh, there's been a, a conversation on our social media over the last week or so. So, But now I'm putting it out in an episode. Hey, folks, what do you think? Give let, us your input. Let us know. Let what, us know. What do you think it adds? What do you think it takes away? We, we want to uh, make this decision with your input. But... Before decisions are made, we're just going to keep on plugging. So okay. would you like to go again, dear? Or would you like me to go uh, again, dear? You call it. Okay, here we go. I'm still heads. Cause... You're head. Okay. God, really? Really? What? 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 I've called heads every time, and it always comes up heads. And you called heads, and it comes up tails? I love you guys, I do, but man. So in two weeks, get ready to cry some more. You guys are going to get a really depressing topic. I'm going to pick the worst one. So that brings us to mailbag time. Mailbag time! Woo! 
If you want to participate in mailbag time, you can send us messages at History Honey's Podcast. Uh, it's all one word, all smooshed together at gmail.com. That's History Honey's Podcast. At gmail.com. Yep. <laughs> so you gave the folks a prompt uh, last time about their favorite plays and musicals. Yeah. Plays, musicals, or history, they might know about them or something else. So you could pull a bait and switch switcheroo on them. And, and not really talk that much about a play or a musical. <laughs> but now we're going to make up for that and do just that. Uh, our good friend Kieran gets back to us uh, about Philadelphia Here I Come by Brian Friel. It's about a young Irishman named Gar who's moving to Philadelphia. It's kind of like... Brooklyn, but a play and better. But uh, the conceit of the play, the gimmick, is that Gar is played by two characters. There's Gar, regular Gar, and there's Gar's inner monologue, saying the things he, he's thinking and would like to say, but doesn't. Uh, so that's cool, and I'd, I'd like to see that. Yeah, that I feel like I've heard the name of that play before, but I mm -hmm. didn't know anything about it. So yeah, look up Philadelphia, Here I Come. Uh, okay, people always say that folks should read more, and I agree, but I think folks should definitely read more plays. Yeah, people don't just pick up a play and read it, and that's a shame. They're great literature, because you can just enjoy a script without having to wait for someone to get a bunch of actors together and donate their time, because there's no money in plays. They're, uh, <laughs> they're, they're also really good, like, if you're like, I don't have a lot of time to read... Or, like, they I don't are. have a lot of time to invest in something, or I get too distracted before I come back to a book. Plays are short to just read. To just read them, it goes really fast. That is true. Um, unless you're doing, like, Angels in America Part 1 and 2, then good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you, Kieran, for the recommendation and uh, telling us about uh, this play that does uh, touch even your family in a very personal way, as uh, some of Kieran's family did immigrate to Philadelphia. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks thanks for emailing again. Thank you, Kieran. Seth sent us a message uh, that their favorite musical is probably 1776. Open up a window. I've actually never seen 1776. Oh, okay. Have you listened to the to the cast recording? No. Oh, you should do that. It's good. I A lot of people I knew growing up were really, really obsessed with 1776. <laughs> I just never really had a chance to experience the movie or anything. I think Seth's tradition with his fa family is pretty cool, though, of, like, watching it every 4th of July. Seems like a great time to do that. It's better uh, to watch with your family than born on the 4th of July. <laughs> oh, don't do that. Don't do that. We once did that with a friend's family. And don't oh, don't oh. watch that with your friend's grandpa. Oh, that's... <laughs> that's awkward. Um, uh, I love the fun fact... Seth sent us as well that President Richard Nixon had a song about wealthy conservatism cut from the film and wanted the footage destroyed, but the employees responsible for cutting the scene packed the footage with the rest of the film, uh, so that way it could be used in the special edition. Yeah. Sneaky people. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I did not know about that. That's pretty cool, though. And I'm glad you're enjoying the history that I tend to sway to, because someone next to me over here is a little worried I'm too depressing. <laughs> so thanks. I just want people to have fun with the show. You can have fun about depressing things and not be a bad person. <laughs> Thank you, Seth. Say, thanks, Seth. Flavifibe, uh, thanks for writing. Uh, they've been a musical fan ever since seeing Jesus Christ, Superstar, in middle school. We like it too! But as for favorites, they're torn uh, between uh, a pretty good bunch to be torn mm-hmm. with, but uh, went in a deep, deep uh, Stephen Sondheim hole following listening to the... Uh, Original Broadway cast recording of Sweeney Todd. I love Sweeney Todd. If I you, love Sweeney Todd so much. If you much. couldn't guess. See, seeing it live mm-hmm. and the whistle blowing is the scariest quack. ever. You need a quack there, but scariest quack. <laughs> love it. Sweeney Todd is a great show. Yes. It is. Uh, and you could do worse than just listening to Sondheim shows for the rest of your life. Good stuff. It's really good stuff. Sunday in the Park with George won a Pulitzer Prize. There you go. So thank you very much, Flavifibe. That's a good, good letter. Oh, oh, I missed your P.S. They'd like to point out Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, and here's a direct quote. Speaking of, I'll be checking just how many times that quarter of yours comes up heads. Uh, quarter. All of the times but one. And that one time was when we switched whose heads and whose tails. So there you go. A good buddy, Burren, sent us uh, another message. Thanks for always sending us a message. Mm -hmm. I like hearing from you. Um, He says he's now slightly self-conscious about being recognized as the most prolific letter writer. But when you write a letter every week, that's what happens. You've got to take a few weeks off if you want someone to pass you. But then I'm going to be worried. Something's wrong. Then we're going to miss you. So you're kind of trapped, Burren. Sorry about that. you, you, You have to keep this up forever. And ever, or I'll worry. His favorite musical is Hamilton, which has not seen, and is uh, forever disappointed that does not live in the U.S. and does not have an international tour of Hamilton happening anytime soon. Its first non-Broadway production is going to be here in Chicago, where we live, and even we can't see it. No, we, we did not get... We have the block of tickets made available... Ticketmaster exploded that day, and we were on the outside looking in. So I understand. I understand your want. I understand your need. It's going to be a couple miles from us, and it ain't <laughs> happening here. Purin also recommends people to look up Lin-Manuel Miranda, the writer, star, composer of Hamilton, uh, guesting on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver for a uh, segment about Puerto Rico. Uh, and... He wrote a song explaining some of the the problems that Puerto Rico's having financially and with their uh, in-between liminal status uh, uh, in American law. And it was pretty uh, impressive and moving. So yeah, definitely agree on that point. I suggest everyone watches this past year's Tony's as well. <laughs> just look at that way that man looks at people. Oh, he's, he's a sweetheart. He is. He just cares so much about everything. <laughs> Touches my heart. Anyways, thanks for writing again. Thanks, Purin. Uh, that brings us to Andrew. Andrew found our show from uh, my 
video game podcast that I do with another friend of mine. Uh, but as for a favorite musical, there are two that they just cannot decide between, uh, Beauty and the Beast and the Drowsy Chaperone. I, I love Beauty and the Beast, the movie. Yeah. That 1990-whatever production <laughs> is something. I love watching old Tony performances, because just seeing styles come and go, seeing trends rise and fall. Beauty and the Beast in, like, the 94, 95, whenever they put it on stage originally, is so over-glitzed. It's ridiculous. <laughs> the, the, the Beast costume, especially the makeup, is... Something to behold. <laughs> Google that if you're not worried about nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> but the the drowsy chaperone is something that wasn't an Oscar nominated film, so so I think yeah. people might not know as much about it. Uh, it's a show within a show. It, it follows a man known only as Man in Chair talking about. Uh, his favorite musical, which is called The Drowsy Chaperone, and he plays a record and, and directly talks to the audience about it. And whenever he plays the record, the show happens, mm -hmm. like, in his living room and mostly in his memory. It's a really cool, like, metatextual yeah. thing. And and it was Sutton Foster's big break, so I love oh. this show forever. Because I love Sutton Foster forever. <laughs> I, I actually just saw... Um a couple months ago, a bunch of a selection of scenes and numbers from the Drowsy Chaperone performed, and it is great. Yeah, it was very, very entertaining. Um, and even though I was a theater major in college, I did not know much about it beforehand. <laughs> so thank you, Andrew. Tom sent us a message and said that well, it'd be easy to put Hamilton as their favorite um in the eye of a hurricane <laughs> they they decided to go with one of the most unique theater going experiences that they've uh had which was the shags philosophy of the world a musical about the worst or greatest band of all time to, <laughs> to quote their message um i'd never heard of this before, so I'm glad you gave us um, some info about it. Apparently, it's, it centers around the true story of a band uh, that was formed because of a palm reading. Mm -hmm. and an, an auspicious beginning, to be sure. The, the reader said that the man would meet a woman with certain hair color and have three daughters and would be in the best band in the world. And the man believed them so much that he married a woman with that hair, had three daughters, pulled them out of school to learn music... But, you know, think things don't always work out the way a palm reader <laughs> tells you. Apparently it was in, like, 2003 and was off-Broadway for a run in 2011. Um, it doesn't seem quite commercial enough to make that jump to, to, yeah. the, to the big theaters. Yeah. Which is my favorite kind of thing. I want to look into that one more. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, Jamie writes back to us, but Jamie would like to talk about, uh, the Lion King on Broadway. Ah, That's not quite it. I don't, I don't know. It's not. I, I still need to learn the Swahili. But, uh, Jamie is lucky enough to go to a school with a stellar theater department. 
Uh, so uh, he's seen some friends and schoolmates in great local productions of Mary Poppins, Pajama Game, and Jamie's also fond of 1776. Hey, looks like we got a plurality in the house. <laughs> oh, also, uh, Jamie just went to Cape May, where I believe that sunken boat from his first letter is from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We got and uh, if you want to look at our Twitter, we retweeted some of his pictures from that visit of the sunken boat. Yeah. Thanks for sending those. Mm -hmm. It's cool to see. Uh, but Jamie specifically wants to share a story of the naming of Cape May. It, uh, Cape May, M-A-Y, was pointed out by a fur trader named Cornelius Jacobson May, M-E-Y, who just looked at it uh, while sailing by and like, I like that. And so they named it after him. N never set foot there. But uh, that's all it takes if you, if like you get it. there early enough. Ooh, that looks nice. It's going to be named after me. Cool. Let's go. <laughs> so thank you, Jamie. Well, that's our, our mail. But I got, I got a question for you. What? Yeah. What? Is your favorite musical? I'm on the spot here? Yeah, I'm going to make you say okay. it because everyone else is talking about it, it. It is Jesus Christ Superstar. I love yeah, it top to bottom. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. Uh, I could go on about Jesus Christ Superstar from like a theological perspective, which uh, while I think would be interesting, maybe I'll save that for one of my other shows because it's not exactly a history topic. Uh, you could throw in some history about the production. I could. Okay, dear, what is your favorite musical or play? My favorite musical is Newsies, <laughs> but the movie, <laughs> not the Broadway production that has since been made. Uh, the Broadway production. Maybe the tour cast was just bad. But it's changes they made to the script. Yeah. Changes they made to songs. Yeah. It's the way they formatted it for the stage that weakened characters and weakened the show overall. And made it even less historically accurate. Yes. <laughs> the dance scene in the Broadway production is phenomenal. Yeah, they, they... The set was cool. I think they won for choreography that year, too. Yeah, but they, they weakened it. Ooh, plays. I mean... I'm very much a, these are my musical favorites, these are my play favorites, you can't, mm -hmm. they don't cross. Are you having trouble deciding between Angels in America and anything else? I do love Angels in America. <laughs> I, I love Marisol, though. Oh, you were great in Marisol, too. Oh, oh thanks. <laughs> but yeah, Mar Marisol by Jose, Jose Rivera mm -hmm. is amazingly wonderful and really, really weird, super crazy, just, there's no way to describe it. It. It kind of just fucks with your mind. Yeah. You need to see Marisol with a bunch of really great actors and a budget of 50 bucks or less to really get it. It's amazing what you can it's, do with newspaper, guys. It's so good. Yeah. I, I think that tops Angels in America for me, though I love Angels in America. All right. So look up Marisol. It's about um, the world ending and no one really noticed along the way. Read it. It's amazing. It's so good. I, so yeah, I guess that's it for that segment. Mm -hmm. If you would like to be in the mailbag, if you'd like to send us a message about any old thing under the sun, not just the prompts, yeah. uh, feel free. That's, again, historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And I am stealing the prompt from you. I don't care that you won the coin toss. Take it. Please take it. <laughs> I love you guys. I love writing episodes, but I need a break. 
<laughs> so instead, if you do want to follow the prompt for the next episode, why don't you tell me your favorite television ad? That's a weird one. And if you've got a history fact to go along with it, all the better. Or anything else under the sun you want to talk about. We're here to chat. Yeah. We, re we read all the messages. We enjoy them. Mm -hmm. uh, Thanks to the people who've been also uh, starting to comment on our Facebook and add messages there and stuff. Yeah. Um, it's nice to see that starting to get a little bit more active. Since the last uh, episode went up, we've crossed 100 Facebook likes mm -hmm. on the page. That's just History Honeys on Facebook or History Honeys on, tw uh, on Twitter. Yeah. No underscore, just all together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... So thanks for uh, posting on those places. We appreciate it so, so much. We love talking to you any way we can. Uh, other ways you can communicate with us or about us is by leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, they've been coming in and they help more than you know, more than is reasonable. Darn robots. <laughs> robots. The other best thing you can do to help us grow and help us reach new friends like yourselves is by word of mouth, just sharing our show with people you know. It means so much to us, and it really does help a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm nodding right over here in agreement this whole time. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. <laughs> if uh, Since we're starting to get more active on our social media sites, if you have, I guess, suggestions for... Uh, what you would like to see come out of our social media sites. Yeah. Like, if you would... Now that we've got you there, what would you like to see there? <laughs> yeah, like, do you, you know, if... if Because we're still figuring out how how kind of to use them, how people want to interact with them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are you interested in, I don't know, pictures that go with episode stuff, you know? Yeah. If we talk about this one subject, should do you want us to throw up some examples uh, that relate to it? Historical photos? Um I know we've got Extra an, questions. We've I got don't an know. episode coming in or after October that will have some vacation photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess let us know if uh, there's something you'd like to see and or have a suggestion for how uh, we could better interact. Feel free to send us an email or drop a note. So I guess all that's left to say is that I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your, your honey. honey.